Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. It has already been mentioned earlier that it is a privilege for us to come together to assemble in your name, to open, read, and study your word. Help us to be obedient to you. Pray that you would open our hearts. Show us what we need, how we need to submit, what we need to do to comply. We are asking your involvement in the church. That doesn't mean that you're not involved already. We know you are. We want to do what is necessary. We talk about change. We know that change just for the sake of change is not the answer. You've given us commands and directions and scripture as to how we are to live. And we know that we are to be salt and light in the world. And so I pray that you'll help us to be faithful in these things. Help us to hear your voice. Pray that you will speak to us clearly. Pray for my heart that you would help me to be obedient to you all the time, to be aggressive. Thank you so much for your love for us, for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for the privilege that is ours to look into your word and your truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. We're looking at the church, the letter to the church of Philadelphia, and we have this map that David has provided for us. We have the different churches in kind of a, a postal route. And Philadelphia is next to the last one on the list there. It's the city that you've probably heard repeated before, the city of brotherly love. That's mm -hmm. what it means. That's the idea. And we're looking, going through, and uh, just kind of walking through the letter. Uh, we begin with the correspondent, which is the person that is communicating to these churches. And I mentioned it each time, but we do it again to realize that we are actually communicating to a, an actual church that contained actual people and they had strengths and weaknesses and uh, just like we all have in the seeking to follow the Lord, we have areas that need to be built up and we have things that need to be corrected and we have words of encouragement and words of instruction. And so we've been looking at this letter. We've seen the Lord taking place in the spiritual realm. We've seen the Lord walking through what is termed the candlesticks, which are the seven churches, and he is evaluating the churches, and then he is speaking. And uh, the correspondent, the human correspondent, is, of course, the apostle John, and he's identified for us uh, in, verse, uh, in, in Revelation 1. At the end of verse 1, it says it's communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John. Verse 4, John to the seven churches, John 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker. So the point is, and we know that, we don't need to belabor the point, that John, the Apostle John, is the human instrument that is used to communicate this letter. But more than that and beyond that is the fact that the Lord Jesus is the one that's communicating. It's his message, his evaluation and in his work, he is the author of all of the, the letters of all of these to all these seven churches. He is the single 
spokesman to the single author that is communicating to us. And he's the one that we want to hear from this morning. We want to hear not from me or anybody else, but mainly we want to hear from the Lord and hear what he has to say and reply to him and respond to him. He is the correspondent then. And uh, we were introduced to him in Revelation chapter one, weren't we? Where John said, I heard a voice behind me. When I heard, I turned and I saw, and he saw this image of the Messiah, the glorified, exalted uh, Messiah. And when he saw the image, he fell on his, his at his feet as a dead man. He was just really not taken back by that. This is the one that's speaking. And it's the one that's speaking to us here this morning, even though he may be using my voice or maybe using the type in the book. It's his, it's his word, it's his communication to us. We want to hear what he has to say to us. He's been speaking to the church at Ephesus where he's introduced as the one who holds the seven stars, that is the angels. He's the one who controls the leadership of the church uh, in his right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands, which is the church itself. He is overseeing the church and he's speaking to the messengers of the leadership of the church. And that's a good thing to remember. It's important that with the, with the Lord Jesus, that we really want his will. Uh, and I know we have struggles, and I have struggles too, in our lives and our walk with him, but we want to be pleasing to the Lord. We want to respond to him. We want to be obedient to him. In the uh, letter to the church at Smyrna, he is termed the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Uh, he is there dealing with this church that's going through suffering and hardship and a church that's going through suffering and hardship it's a good thing to remember that their savior their lord also went through suffering and hardship and difficulties and uh that he is there with us and he is there to tell us that he's on the other side to the church of pergamum he is introduced as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword uh, that church was plagued with the temptation of Balaam and Nicolaitans to compromise their their position with the world. And he is the one who has the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God that can cut, expose, and identify things in our lives that need to be identified. To the church of Thyatira, he is identified as the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. He can bring judgment where there is sin and reveal these things to us. And he can do that to us, and he can do that to you, and he, we want that. We want that that purification, that judgment, if you will, that exposure to our hearts. Um, and it's just really important that he does that. It's important that we listen when he's speaking to us. Then there is the Church of Sardis. Uh, he's called the one who is, who, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars and that church, church was the church that was sleeping, uh, was the dead church, and he is the one who has the life, the spirits of God, the spirit is the spirit of life that gives life to us, to our flesh. And then we come now to the church of Philadelphia. Uh, in the church of Philadelphia, he is introduced with a rather lengthy introduction in Revelation chapter three, verse seven. Uh, the correspondent who is the Lord is called, um, he is he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And he speaks to the church. He speaks 
to the to the saints. And this morning, we want to hear what he has to say. Notice, by the way, when we come, and we'll be coming in just a moment to to some of the words of condemnation. And you might notice, and I was just noticing on this uh, chart over here that David had provided for us, that the condemnations here to this particular church are none. There's no words of condemnation given to that church, but there are some words of commendation. And uh, so we want to look at that. But before we actually get into that, let's examine the name briefly that the Lord identifies himself. He has identified himself, first of all, as holy. To be holy means to be separate, hagios. It means to be separate or be consecrated or devoted. Um, it means that he, here is one who is sharing uh, the holiness, the separation, and the beauty of the Lord. Um, he introduces that as himself. He is not one who is, we are called holy ones in scripture, saints. Uh, but it's not because we ourselves possess the holiness as much as we ourselves are set apart by God. He is the one that gives us that separation and calls us that. Here is one who in himself is holy. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament both. God is introduced as holy. In the Kings, he is introduced as the Holy One of Israel. There's the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Over and over again, is introduced in the Old Testament as the Holy One, the one who is set apart, the one who is consecrated of Israel. We want to remember that because he's, he says over and over again, you shall be holy because I am holy. In other words, that we should be identified uh, as separate, as pure, because he is. He's called us to do that. He's called me to do that. He's called you to do that. The New Testament it's pretty much the same thing. He is called in Mark, among many titles, the Holy One of God. Uh, Luke, uh, the angel spoke to Mary and talked about the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. Uh, Peter records he's the Holy One of God, the Holy One of, in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, you disown the Holy and Righteous One. So the first thing that this, the one that is speaking to us, is identified as as being separate, as being apart from uh, the contamination or sin. This glorified man, if you will, is speaking to John, claiming to be John, uh, uh, claiming to be divine. Uh, he is not bearing somebody else's holiness. He is himself holy. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess with God, that he is who he says he is. And so he is the Holy One. Second, he is true, which is a way of saying that he is um, genuine. And over, I thought it was interesting, the number of passages that identify him that way. Revelation 6.10, how long, O Lord, holy and true. Revelation 15.3, talking about the Lord God, the Almighty, the righteous and true are your ways. Revelation 16, 7, true and righteous are your judgments. Revelation 19, verse 2, true and righteous. Verse 11, faithful and true and in righteousness he judges. So he is one who is genuine. He is one who is pure. Um, the, the scribes authentic. He is authentic. He is real. He is holy. He is real. He is true. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, 
the serpent um, came and was really a phony. He was, he was a usurper of God's authority. He wanted to usurp the authority. He tried to trick Eve. He did deceive her. And he deceived Eve into surrendering her obedience and, and switching her allegiance from the Lord to him. And, uh, but here is one who is true, who is real, who is holy, who is genuine. And he's writing the churches and addressing the churches. He's, we, want to, we want to hear from him. We want to hear what he has to say to us. We want to be evaluating ourselves, not according to what we feel, but according to what he says, his, his words. And he's given us uh, commands. We, we uh, know in scripture that he's called us to make disciples, not of ourselves, but of him, disciples of the Lord, told us that in the Great Commission. So here's one, and uh, he is holy and he is true. He also has the key of David frequently in the scripture, um, he is referred to as the one who is the source of David, as well as the one who is the offspring of David. He is the source of David. He is the offspring of David, which they, that can only happen through the virgin birth. But he is the, the source and the offspring of David. He is the root of David. Uh, he is the root and descendant of David. And yet he possesses the keys. And the keys are a way of referring to authority. If you have the keys, if you're a keeper of the keys, you have the authority to open doors and close doors. And that's that's what he's referring to here. Here's one in the, in the image of the glorified Savior who has the authority. He's holy, he's true, and he has the authority to open and close doors. And uh, several places you see that Revelation 1.18, keys of death and hell. Revelation 9.1, keys of the bottomless pit. Revelation 21, uh, holding the key of the abyss. Revelation, uh, Matthew 19, 16, 19 talks about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So here is a place where the keys are authority to open and close things. And it's important for us to see that. So the key of David is used, for example, in Isaiah 22, where it speaks of Eliakim, David's prime minister. And in Isaiah 22, 22, it says, and I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. So here is this picture in Isaiah of this one that has the, the keys of, of David. And he opens and shuts. And he opens and shuts without reversal. And I think that's what he's talking about is the ability to open. And no one can come back and close it. And the ability to close it. And no one can come back and open it. I, uh, if you read through the <coughs> scriptures, it, you, you read through the accounts of Israel and their kings, and it's not uncommon to, to read of a good king who comes by and makes some good decisions and does some good things, only to be succeeded by a bad king who comes by and undoes or changes or alters some of the good decisions that were made by a previous king and uh, that is a sad case a lot of times even in public life today we can see that happening but here is one who opens and no one can shut here's one who can shut and no one can open no one can undo or bring into question what is being done and so this is the this is the real thing and he is the one who is speaking he is the one who has the authority he is the one who is holy it's true he has the the keys of the kingdom here of David, and he is able to open and no one can shut and shut and no one can 
and open. And that's what I, the, one of the messages that this encourages me here in the church, we want to be effective. We want to, to be able to reach out to people. We want to, to have our lives used to the Lord. We are the ones, by the way, that are responsible insofar as a human instrument of being faithful to share the gospel and to obey the word and to seek to live for the Lord. We're the ones that have that responsibility. And we're not really trying to just bring unbelievers into the church, but rather we're trying to reach them and impress them out there. And then maybe the Lord will, may bring them in or maybe we'll have a chance to share with them and to be faithful because it is our responsibility to do that. We want to do that. We should do that. And so here's this picture of the Lord saying, I open doors and I shut doors. I remember uh, Roger Wynott, good friend of mine. You probably, some of you may remember Roger and his wife, Karen. Roger told me one time, he was really good at trying to witness the people. He told me whenever I go on a plane and sit down beside someone, I try to think of that as a divine appointment. That's God's appointment. And the person next to me is there by God's appointment. And uh, I try to um, give a witness as quickly as I can. Doesn't have to be a big witness, just a witness to say something. And if the conversation turns to the Lord, fine. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And he said, the reason I do, I do it as quick as I can is because sometimes after a few minutes, they'll get up and go off somewhere and I won't see them again. So I just want to take an opportunity uh, to do that. Um, and I thought that was very good. It, it is a divine opportunity. It is an open door that the Lord has given to us. And we may not understand all the details, but if you just put a little feel out, I think it was Moody who said that is, is um, whenever I have the opportunity to, to, to initiate a conversation, I'm going to try to initiate it in some way to the Lord and uh, then let the Lord take it from there as he wants. But these are opportunities that the Lord brings, and they, he's the one that provides them. The church is the church in Philadelphia, and uh, it's, it's the next one on the list there. And I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about its history and its background. It was probably founded by Paul in his, in his ministry at Ephesus, Acts uh, 1910, where it says that the gospel was heard throughout Asia with that the, the uh, influence of that church there. So his, his work is spreading, the ministry of Ephesus is spreading, and it has reached there into this area, this little town of Philadelphia. There were some believers there um, in Philadelphia. They were later martyred with Polycarp and at Smyrna. Also, there was uh, we also know that Ignatius, who was the third bishop of Antioch and a student of the Apostle John, passed through Philadelphia on his way to Rome, where he was martyred under the Emperor Trojan. And so uh, it has an interesting history. There are some influential people that have been associated with it. Um, but that church there was, is not brought under condemnation. It is a church that has lasted and, and existed for some time. It existed several centuries after John wrote the seven letters to the Revelation, and even after the era was overcome by Muslims, the church endured until around the 14th century. So it, it lasted pretty well. The city itself uh, was about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. Um, and it says in Lydia, the traveler would proceed up a 2,500 ascent from Hermas Valley to the vast central plateau, which sat about 800 feet 
a hill atop which sat the city of Philadelphia that overlooked the road, so on and so forth. Um, this, due, its, due to its location, it was frequently frequented by earthquakes and eventually was rebuilt by Tiberius after the great earthquake of AD 17. Uh, it was a, there was a, a fertile volcanic uh, wine producing area where the volcanoes, the volcanic activity brought up a lot of minerals and stuff. And it seemed to be really ideal for producing grapes and vines for the wine industry. And so Romans didn't appreciate that. The Romans went back and had most of the farmers produce corn because corn was what was needed by the Roman army, not the grapes. And so there was a little bit of a conflict there, whatever. Um, the, the city had, and this is interesting, um, the city had a, a, a pretty significant Gentile population, but there were some Jews in that city as well. And uh, archaeology has not uncovered any evidence of Jewish population, which is interesting because the text talks about those who are the synagogue of Satan and says they are Jews, but are not. That's verse nine. And so the text makes it clear there were Jews there and they were opposed to the work of the, of the church and the gospel. And they are, because of their opposition, are classified as being part of a synagogue of Satan, which is a pretty strong term to say. And so we know that that was opposition, but we don't understand completely how it fit in, but that was there, there was that Jewish opposition. And as I said earlier, there are no words of condemnation, but there are words of commendation. Um, quickly, in verse nine, he says, I know your deeds. Again, this is always interesting to me. The Lord identifies the deeds. Here is the sovereignty of the universe. And he knows the church, he knows the people, he knows the deeds. He knows me. He knows you. Um, I don't want to be a hypocrite to you. I can stand up here and act one way, but he knows my heart. He knows what's going on inside. The same with you. He knows your heart. Um, he knows what you, uh, what you are when you're alone by yourself. And uh, he knows what's, what you really are. And uh, we can't fool him. We can't I find that I've tried to manipulate him, and just to be honest with you, tried to to make him into a kind of a genie, uh, maybe a, a point of blessing, and try to do some things or say some things so that he will, you know, I can get what I want from him. You can't do that. I know you can't do that. I can't do that too. You know what I'm saying? It's it's easy to try, but. Um, he is more concerned with what he can do in my life and the reality of it than what I can get from him. He, he can, it, it, providing me with what I want is no problem. It's how I handle what I want and what it does to me. And so we want our lives to be real before him. We want to be, um, we want our lives to, to, to be used of him. We want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we want our lives to bring honor and glory to the savior. That's really more important than anything else. And, uh, but that isn't all the time. That isn't always what I want in the flesh, but it's what I know I want in my mind. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, that's, that's really very important. So he says, I know your deeds. And in this text, there are three words, three times the word behold appears. Actually, the third one is implied, but it's, it is there. And uh, so that kind of gives us in this text a little bit of a, 
acknowledgement of what we're going to be talking about here. He says, I know your deeds. Number one, behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's kind of the first uh, commendation. The second one, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Okay, that's the second little statement there. I will cause them, they're going to be uh, exposed, if you will. And then the third, behold, is I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So this is, this is I think it's very interesting where he says, I know your deeds. You have a little power. You're a small church. You're struggling. Uh, you're a church that has a fear of earthquakes. Um, and you have, have had to change your harvest from grapes to corn because of the Romans. Uh, and there are some Jewish population there that has been very unkind to you. And they are part of what you could call a synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but they're not. They're lying. When he says that, obviously, we know that, that he's not saying that it's not just descendants of Abraham, but that they don't do the deeds of Abraham. They don't follow the passion of Abraham. They're, they're doing their own thing. And so that's, that's the first thing. It's a, it's a, here's a church that the Lord has evaluated and has placed before them with this little power and this struggles that are going on in this opposition of the Jews. He's placed before them an open door. And that's what we want. We want the Lord's provision. We want the Lord's wisdom. We want the Lord's direction. We want his open door. Uh, and there's a door that if he provides it, can't be shut. It's not something that somebody can come by later and manipulate and close it. And so we're asking him for the open door of his direction, his wisdom. And I, I would add not to that, but to kind of clarify that we want to recognize that open door. We want to see it, realize it, and enter through it when he opens the door. The second clause, um, I'm giving some of the, the uh, or causing some of the synagogue of Satan, the ones who say that they are Jews and are not, this Jewish opposition, their Jews are proud of their heritage. That's one of the reasons yeah. why they're they, uh, they think that because they are descendants of Abraham and they have inherited the name Abraham and the seed of Abraham and there are lots of blessings to Abraham and the descendants, they think that, that by that genealogical link, they are okay. They don't realize that they're just as lost as anybody else unless the Lord gives them a new heart, unless they're really transformed. And that right now they have, they don't see, they have a veil covering. They don't see the reality of what they need. And so he says that these who are synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews, and they're not. Uh, he looks at the heart. He calls them a synagogue of, of Satan. They're not Jews. And so here they here is this opposition, but the Lord is placed to this church, who is faced with this opposition, an open door. A door that is many. Now, you, you think about that, and with this opposition, you might think that you have all the struggles you can have, but the struggles are not the issue. The issue is opening, going through the open door because nobody can close it. It's a door of opportunity, and that's a good thing. That's what we want. That's what one of the things we pray for is the Lord give us wisdom. Uh, we're, we're trying to, to, to do an inquiry of the Bible study. We're trying to reach people through the community, through the yard sale, as well as VBS and other things like that. But the Lord is the one that has to open the door. He's the one that has to provide. He's the one that gives us wisdom and direction. I, I personally think he's moving. I really do. I think he's moving in the hearts of the people. I think that the stirring that we're aware of, that we see, is coming from him. 
and I just I want to do everything I can to add fuel to that that fire that holy fire to see it to really be productive and uh, actually I, I don't want to say it's not productive because I can see him working in the hearts of the people and that's the miracle is change hearts but changed hearts want to follow him and produce changed lives and uh, that's that's what we are aiming for here's the third clause behold I will make them come and bow down before you in other words um, God will eventually reach those and they will bow down to Christ they will worship him they will love him as the Gentiles do these Jews who and that's what I really long to see that I really long to see Israel repent I really long to see them come to appreciate their Messiah I don't know the details I know that uh, the prophetic picture is kind of dim as far as Israel is concerned it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better and uh, I the Bible talks about the Jerusalem being surrounded by their enemies and that they're going to be is going to be hopeless and I can, in my mind, if I were making a movie, and I think about that sometimes, if you're doing a movie, that they're desperate, the leaders there, and they're, they're desperate to survive, and they start thinking about the old promises to the old prophets in the scriptures, and they, in a point of desperation, they say, we've really turned our back on the, the, the God of Abraham. And so in our, our desperation, let's just really begin to read and study the scriptures, and in that, you can't help, as Isaiah 53 points out, they can't help but realize that they've crucified the Messiah and that, that he is their Savior. And when they turn to him, they will find that he is sufficient. And he is not, not only to save them from the physical attacks, but more than that, from their own deception, their own lies, and their own uh, blindness. Uh, I'd love to see that. I and that will happen one day. I'm, I know that. We know that from the scriptures. So here is this promise of open door of the changing that he's going to do through the Jews. And then uh, finally, there's this word of encouragement. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, um, that just means my endurance, you've not abandoned, you've kept that word. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Many scholars, including John MacArthur, I uh, think that refers to the time, the deliverance through the tribulation period, and it very well may, does talk about, sound like it, a period of temptation. We know there is coming a great tribulation, a time of trial, and that could be it. But the thing is that he says, he saves, he will keep them from the test, he keep them from the trial, from the difficulties. And we all face difficulties. We all face times of trials. I faced, I know what it's like to struggle, I really do, and to, to struggle with. Uh, the things that you want and the things that God wants and to have that battle back and forth. And uh, I know what that's like. And uh, this this is promised, the Lord is promising to, to deliver you in the midst of these things, deliver them because they're faithful and they've been seeking to follow him. The, this picture is that Jesus is coming back. That's what he says in verse 11. I'm, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one takes your crown. You know what, um, the word there, I think, is to be um, steadfast and not detoured, not, uh, not quit, not be deceived. When he says take your crown, I don't think he's talking about taking the crown away, but taking the opportunity, the, the life that you can have, the, the salvation that God has provided. Don't let somebody talk you out of that. Don't let that be a detour in your life. Um, <clears throat> 
Jesus is coming back. Revelation 1, 7 says he is coming with the clouds. Revelation 2, 5, he says, I am coming. 2, 16, I'm coming to you quickly. Uh, 3, 3, I will come like a thief. I am coming like a thief. These are warnings where he says he's coming back to judge. But then there are also promises where he's coming back to encourage. For example, in Revelation 3, 11, I am coming quickly. Oh, back to what you have. Revelation 22, behold, I am coming quickly. <clears throat> Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation uh, 22, 12, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22, 20, I am coming quickly. So this is a, this is a good thing. He is coming back. He promises to do that. And um, the scripture talks about the earthly temple, but he is the heavenly temple. He is, and he is the heavenly priest, and he is the one who loves us. He is the one who sits in intercession for us. And this one is coming back. Uh, he's coming back um, for his people. He's coming back to save as well as bring judgment. The world hasn't seen the last of him. Okay. And this is this is um, this is a promise and a hope and a reality. We, I struggle to envision how what it's like when the world that rejects him is forced to recognize he's coming back. That's going to be a rude awakening, and uh, so he is coming, and we understand that. Um, here is the picture of their security. He says, and this one uh, in verse. Well, uh, to the, this like his counsel, to the overcomers, those who overcome. And we know we are, believers are called overcomers. We are ones that are living in a world uh, that does not love the Savior, so to speak. It's, it's, uh, the, in fact, Jesus said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love for the Father is not in him. And uh, so, uh, to the overcomers, he said, I will make him a pillar. Uh, we're looking at the temple this morning. Well, in the Old Testament, pillars were set up as symbols or, or uh, reminders of some things that God has done. A lot of times out in the wilderness, they would set up a pillar like a Bethel or whatever, anointed with oil. This was a, this was a, a, a place of, of steadfast remembrance. And so he says, those who are overcomers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That was, he will, you will be a, a, a position of security, if you will, or position of uh, stability in the temple of my God. And he will not go out anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So here is this writing of the name and recognition that uh, of the Lord on their lives. And I'm not going to go into detail on that because we don't have time. But the, to be an overcomer is to be associated with the Lord and to be identified with him. And he is making that identification on us, writing his name and giving us his point of security. And then that, wouldn't that be something? I've often thought about that to, to the things that, one of the things I've been praying and asking the Lord has helped me uh, to be a, uh, a man of God. That was Old Testament designation of prophet. Uh, it helped me to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. When these things happen, that's all that really matters. That's really what all that matters. We have, and I do, I have uh, wants and wishes and goals and desires now, and I'm sure you do too, things you want. But the thing that really matters is to be pleasing to him and to honor him. And we want to do that. We want to do that in this church. And we can do that if we open the door, we follow the doors that he opens and pursue the things that he has laid out for us. And so here is this picture 
uh, the one he's going to make him a pillar uh, a permanent stable uh, sign of honor pagan temples were adorned with carvings that honor their deity and but here is the, the pillar that the lord has established in us and uh, it's it is um that which is to bring glory to his name uh, he goes on to say and they will not go out from it anymore that's security um There will be this, the city in Philadelphia struggle with being worried about earthquakes and volcanic activity. But here this in this city, they will be forever secure. I will write on them the name of my God. Uh, this is God's permanent description of his ownership to his children. Hmm. We are God's. He's given us his son, Jesus, and his son secures us for the father. It's impossible us to be more secure than we are in Christ. And he says, I'll put him on the name of my, of the city of my God from the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I think it's interesting the frequency with which he refers to the Lord as my God, which, and I'm really trying to, I, rather than getting scripture, I've tried to mold that over in my mind. And here is the the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the, of the Godhead, speaking as a as a man who is here serving his Father, and he calls him my God, my God, my God. He, he's speaking of him in his submissive role as a servant to his Father, to his God, almost as an example of how we should be doing that, how we should be living in submission to and surrender to the Lord who is our God. And he says, I'm going to give him a new name. Uh, and this is a good, this is a point uh, of, of, uh, of new identification. We are a different person, a different people, and he's given us a new name, a new identity. And uh, <clears throat> then he closes by saying, and I'll stop there, because that's the end of the text. He who has an ear, let him hear. And that's what we want. We want to be, I want to be listening. I, when I start my Bible reading in the morning, and I do it, I try to do it every morning, uh, Sunday mornings, I don't get a chance to do as much because I'm trying to get ready here. But when I get do my Bible reading in the morning and I read the scriptures and I ask the Lord, I said to open my heart, my mind, because my mind, and Rick, you know what I'm talking about, your mind, you get sits down to read and your mind wanders. And sometimes it wanders on purpose. I mean, yeah, sometimes I just get, what did you say? I said, I thought it was just me. No, not just you. Uh, and and uh, we, we get involved in all kinds of detours and all kinds of traps and stuff like that. And it's hard to, to discipline yourself. Debbie, do you want to say something? I just wanted to say something in, in, in Revelation 3 that when you read, I have a living Bible, and, I, and I, it says in that verse that we were reading, um, as for the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will be secure and will go out no more. I will write my God's name on him. And he will be a citizen of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven from my God. He will have a mighty name inscribed on him. The chapter, the verse four says, "Everyone who conquers will be clothed in white, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. But I will announce before my Father in heaven and his angels that he is mine." Mm -hmm. And I like how it said that yeah, he's going to announce, yeah. you know. 
announce your personal name, your name before the Father and his angels because he, you are his. You think at that moment you'll be glad that you belong to him? Yeah, can yeah. you imagine yeah. that in front of everyone? Uh, no, 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 and including the angels. That's what he says in front of the angels. Yeah, in front of the angels and yeah. Father yeah. Heaven, he's going to announce that you are his. That is very personal, isn't that? Terrible? And there are others in Matthew where he says, I will say to them, depart from me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So be sure. That's a word to me. That's a word to you. Yeah, thank you for sharing. He'll that. Announce it I, know. Proud, I know, I know. You know, sometimes you go, I thought, oh my goodness, what are you proud of? Oh my well, exactly. Exactly. There's nothing in us to be proud of. Yeah. Exactly. Let's pray. Father, do uh, impress upon our hearts things that you have to say to us in this, in this book and from the one who is speaking. And we pray that in spite of the limitations and distractions, and the weaknesses of the speaker, which are very real. I pray that you would be speaking to our hearts, my heart, our hearts, help us to be obedient, help us to be submissive, help us to comply, ask you to, to direct our steps and our lives in a way that honors you, help us to be the overcomers that we are reading about. We realize that our, our progress, our direction, even our uh, desiring to, to obey you, to repent of our sin and to obey you is really in your hand that you have to enable us to do that. So I just ask you to do your work on each heart here, beginning with me, helping us to really love you, help us to really follow you and to put a priority on that relationship. Thank you so much <coughs> for your goodness and thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for this letter. And we pray that you would just give us wisdom and direction, provide the open doors that you want. Um, sometimes it seems like you move real slow. And uh, I don't want to be the cause of holding us up. And I know you don't, you, we don't either. And so I pray that you'll help us to, if we need to get out of the way, help us to be faithful to do that and to cooperate with whatever you're doing to make us instruments through which you can bring honor and glory to the Savior. We want to see his name exalted, and we want to be part of doing that, making that real, making that happen. Help us to be faithful, I pray in Jesus' name. Thanksgiving. Amen.